Hi, welcome to the Codcast, Commonwealth Magazine's weekly podcast focusing on politics and policies and the people who impact both, except for today. Today, we're just going to talk among ourselves and you'll be listening. My name's Jack Sullivan. I'm a reporter with Commonwealth Magazine. I'm here along with Bruce Mole, editor of Commonwealth, Michael Jonas, associate editor. Is that your title now? Associate editor or executive close, editor? Cl- or close enough. The big guy. Um, today, we're going to talk about um, a variety of issues and, and how they uh, impact politics and policy going forward up on uh, Beacon Hill. Bruce, why don't you take over and uh, lead us into it? Well, the most recent one that's come up is uh, criminal justice issues. Michael, you were writing about this uh, just today. So tell us what's going on with that. So there's been a, a big push nationally, and Massachusetts is part of it, for sort of sweeping criminal justice reform, a turn away from the tough-on-crime uh, policies of the 80s. And the state has been engaged in this more-than-year-long process of reviewing uh, sort of everything you know across the board in, in criminal justice policy with an eye toward uh, legislation that, that could, uh, could be passed or introduced early next year. And so the final meeting of this working group uh, occurred yesterday, and although advocates have been pushing for, for a more sweeping proposal, what's been clear as this process has rolled along is that, uh, is that the focus is going to be more narrowly looking at issues uh, affecting people once they're kind of at the tail end of their time in the system, people getting out of prison and, and sort of enhancing supervision under probation, providing more reentry services, which I think advocates are all fine with, but they say that that we're missing a big opportunity at what they're calling the front end on sentencing policy uh, to look at at things that that are perhaps sending too many people to jail in the first place. So there's been tension really brewing over the last few weeks over this. The Catholic bishops in the state sent a letter weighing in, uh, basically siding with the advocates, saying, uh, you know, Beacon Hill needs to make this review broader in sweep the uh, caucus of black and Latino Lawmakers on Beacon Hill have followed suit with a letter as well. So I'm sort of curious about the front end, back end of this issue. The back end, which is what this group is, seems to be focusing more on, um, is trying to keep is – is it the point to keep people from coming back into prison once they get out, whereas the front end is to prevent them from coming in in the first place? Right, exactly. I mean, the, the sort of the focus has been and the talk has been about how can we reduce recidivism rates. So – you know, a, a, you know, a huge percentage of people who get out of jail return, you know, within three years, data show. So uh, the focus has been what can we do to, to sort of keep people on a, you know, on a, on a productive path once they've been in the system. I think the argument on the other side is that it's just that if the funnel is too wide, we're sending too many people into jail who could be diverted to other kinds of services or programs uh, in the first place. What, what I don't get about it is that I mean, this is something that has, it's not a new issue, absolutely not a new issue. I mean, I remember back up on uh, the State House when um, Mike Dukakis was in office and they built New Braintree Prison. Um, and, and despite all of the um, uh, controversy over it, the reason is because we were running at 137% capacity at the time. You know, it's one of the reasons that they built Shirley as well. So that there has been this talk from for 30 years now about overcrowding and how it's a matter of uh, uh, disproportionate representation of minorities. Why, what, what's, what's going to happen now that's, that's going to change that conversation? I mean, why hasn't anything happened now? 
Well, I mean, I mean, one thing is that incarceration rates are down slightly in recent years, so that some of that... The over- but are we, we're still running overcrowding, right, at, at all of our prisons? Uh, I'm not sure that's true at all the facilities. Uh, I mean, a lot of the county facilities, I think, tend to be tend to be, I mean, and actually most of the people incarcerated in the state are incarcerated through the county system, I think. Um, but, but I think the reason it's sort of coming to the head, and it's, and it's sort of funny that you're talking about Dukakis, who got slammed, right, in the 1988 presidential race for being soft on crime, the Willie Horton case we all know about, but they were still looking to build prisons at that time. Or, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, who was, uh, you know, spearheaded this big federal uh, crime bill in the 90s. It was just a different time when even liberal Democrats were sort of on board with that. And, and things have really shifted. And that's why I think the conversation is coming to a head now as part of a national, a national trend. It's, you know, including, you know, conservative leaders in red states that are also sort of rethinking whether, uh, you know, uh, to use the term of the day, mass incarceration is really the solution to public safety. And 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 it's you know and and there's a lot of arguments that it's really destroying uh, a lot of urban communities, uh, minority communities, because of uh, just the inordinate number of people there in those communities who are cycling in and out of prison, and the ripple effects that has through families and and uh, and who, throughout who the community. The player, who are the players behind this up there? I mean, it, well, you you could have t- you know ten fifteen years ago you could have taken a look at all of the liberal Democrats and said this person this person this person wants to make the changes. Now you're talking about and you've written about it about the um, uh, conservative approaches that, that are talking about reducing uh, this through less incarceration through diversion things like that. So up on Beacon Hill, who's behind this? Yeah, I mean I think you're right. Although it's interesting, I don't think that same dynamic is exactly playing out here because I think. You know, this whole review of the policies was set in motion by the governor, the House Speaker, the Senate President, and the Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice. They're kind of the big four, and nationally, that's how this thing works. You need those those individuals in every state to sign on to bring in this federal funding and group that does the review. But I think in our state, I think the Chief Justice and the Senate President, Stan Rosenberg, are the ones sort of most behind a more aggressive reform, and I think. Uh, the Republican governor, Charlie Baker, and the House Speaker, Bob DeLeo, are the ones that are seen as a little uh, a little more reluctant to sort of take that, that, that sort, sort of, of contrary full dive. Sort of contrary to what's going on nationally. Right. I mean, here I think it's playing out more along traditional ideological lines with the sort of more liberal leaders favoring more sweeping reform. I mean, I think in particular, I think people think Governor Baker is the, is the, is the one who's sort of holding back this this process from looking more broadly at, at sentencing issues. He's, you know, people don't believe he's interested in, in seeing big changes to sentencing law. So, uh, but, but there's still a lot, a lot that could give over the next few weeks and, uh, and, and, and we'll see sort of how, how it shakes out once the new year starts. That's interesting. You, you mentioned it's run counter to what has gone on in Texas and a number of very Republican states, they've sort of adopted the view that we can save money, be more efficient by reforming the system. Is it still true, I guess maybe because of the Willie Horn thing, that Demo- not Democrats, but people here in Massachusetts are worried about being labeled soft on crime still by walking back this stuff? I think that is true. I think that there, I think that there is kind of this ironic, you know, sort of skittishness here around that. And, and, you know, the Baker administration people also are, have been pointing out throughout this process that we have 
relative to other states, pretty low incarceration rates, one of the lowest in the country. So they've been sort of continually, I think, trying to frame this thing in a way to, I think, kind of head off this kind of onrush of, of, of calls for big changes that might, might lessen sort of the number of people entering the system, you know, at what everybody's calling the front end. Right, right. Let's talk about pot, Jack. That's your expertise. <laughs> My bailiwick. <laughs> your bailiwick. What's going on with that this coming year in the legislature? Well, as we speak, it's legal. Um, people can grow it. People can have it. People can smoke it if they got it. Um, oh, do you have to have your lighter there, Jack? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they can't uh, buy it, which is, you know, somewhat of a uh, uh, oxymoron. You know, on the one hand, you can have it, but then when you have it, people will say, well, where'd you get it? Um, and it certainly isn't going to grow fast enough. But I, I, it's going to be, I think anyway, it's going to be probably, if not, it. it I, don't, I don't think we can fairly say it'll be the most important issue because it certainly isn't going to be the most important issue. I mean, it's already decriminalized. It's already legal for medical marijuana. Um, but given the um, um, all of the noise around the ballot question, I think it will be one of the most watched uh, issues up on Beacon Hill for the next year because they're going to have to tackle it. They're going to have to regulate it. They're going to have to uh, see if it can be done within the deadlines that are proposed by the or that are mandated by the initiative, um, which means get it on board and uh, get retail up and running by January 1st of 2018. And and you've still got a lot of opposition to that. Um, you know, you've got Deb Goldberg uh, in the treasurer's office saying there's just no way that we're going to be able to do that. You know, we can't create this entire new bureaucracy uh, and, and get it running and, and do it in a safe and sane manner. Um, you've got uh, Bob DeLeo um, and, uh, in the House saying that, you know, we're going to be taking a look at uh, the, the dates that uh, become effective. We're going to make some changes. And there's also the question about whether or not that they should raise the taxes. And there, and there certainly is a lot of appetite, I think, um, up on Beacon Hill, if not from the backers of the uh, legislation to raise the tax, which, right, I mean, everybody points to saying that it's only 3.75%. Well, technically, that's right. That's the excise tax. But there's also the sales tax on it uh, that is charged on everything but food and clothing in Massachusetts. So right now, the effective tax is 10% plus 2% for a local uh, option. Um, it certainly isn't on the level of what Washington or Colorado is charging, uh, but it's still more than you know what opponents are saying, the 3.75%. So if you're talking about a billion-dollar industry, which is what everybody agrees on both sides is that you know, that's, that's where it's going to be in a couple of years, you're talking about about $100 million coming in um, to the state and about another 20 million coming into cities and towns. So I, I think that there's a lot riding on it that that's going to uh, involve a lot of uh, uh, action. You guys, I wonder what you each think about this question about who's to sort of blame for if we're saying things are kind of a mess now with with the ambiguity around so many aspects of the law, talk about deficiencies in it in terms of taxation. Because there's really a case to be made that that the fault really is on Beacon Hill. I mean, they 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 elected to not try yeah, they to had try, try to grapple with this thing, and I think that was because uh, it was an odd situation. You know, uh, and many of the leaders, the governor, the House Speaker, didn't favor legalization, so they said we're going to try to. You know, we want this thing voted down by 
the voters. Now, polling was showing pretty consistently that it was it, it was likely to pass. I guess you could say, you know, you don't give up on your principles, and they it was you know right for them to sort of advocate and fight for what they believed in. But but uh, you know, I know the Senate president at, he kind of waffled on his position and wavered. Eventually, he said he was going to vote for it. And I think it, it, you know, I don't even really know if I've heard his views on the issue itself as much as he's always said he doesn't think that the ballot is the place to make laws. And he, you know, he felt the legislature should have taken it up sort of with the understanding that the voters would probably pass it otherwise. And now, and so now they're kind of left sort of trying to clean up the mess. Well, I, I think in a way that's true, but I also think that that was always the way it was going to be. I mean, there's, there is a rich tradition up on Beacon Hill of changing initiatives. I mean, we know that from the uh, income tax that's been passed, from the campaign finance bills that uh, reform that was passed by voters. I, I think that um, a, a citizen's you know, petition uh, or an initiative is not sacrosanct. I think that they know that it's going to be uh, changed up on Beacon Hill no matter what you hear from uh, proponents. To right some degree, now. but they always do it nervously, right? They always say, we're not going to thwart the will of the voters. I mean, I think there's they're even nervousness now about it. And they, you know, I think they might have, you know, they might have preferred How to just... How nervous were they when they um, when they totally ignored the uh, income tax change, you know, or when they ignored the campaign finance change? They, they can give it a lot of lip service about, you know, we, we don't want to... Uh, they're not, they're the not touching the gas indexing one. I mean, I think they're, 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 they kind of pick their, their battles. I think that's exactly true. They pick their battles, and I think this is one. Clean elections, they seem to very quickly dispose of that. But I think this is one that that really isn't going to come back and bite them, no matter how they go with it. You know, I mean, it's still, um, it was what, 55 45 and uh, 54 46, something like that, uh, coming out of the, you know, it was decisive, but it wasn't uh, a landslide by any stretch of the imagination. You've still got an awful lot of uh, town officials and um, which, which is another thing as well. Part of the uh, uh, initiative that was passed mandated uh, an opt-out clause for cities and towns that they had to take it to a vote um, to exclude marijuana. I think that I, I don't think anybody wants it to be an opt-out uh, as far as uh, um, official position goes. So I think that's definitely something that's going to be changed up there. Will Baker and DeLeo go for a tax increase on marijuana? I, I think it's it's tough to say no to. Um, you know, I, I, I can't... I, I think when Baker steps back and looks at it and, and says that, um, you know, this is what happened in Colorado and this is what's happening up in Maine and this is what's happening out in uh, Washington, um, that he'll find a way to get to yes on that. And, uh, and I think DeLeo... I, I, I don't think he's as... Um, um, blinded by uh, no new taxes pledge as um, a lot of Republicans are. You know, he just, he may sound it, but I think he's uh, definitely open to uh, uh, higher revenues. I mean, if if he wasn't, he never would have gone for the uh, casinos and the um, tax that they put on that. You agree, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I think they're going to come around and, and, and up the tax. I mean, I mean, Baker's been like confronted with all these kind of odd tax proposals, whether it's this or, you know, Airbnb, which is saying we want to be taxed. I mean, that that sort of throws him, throws a curve at him. And I think, uh, you know, I think that they're trying to sort of figure out how they can frame these things so that he still maintains his basic opposition to any, you know, new taxes or new broad-based taxes. I mean, he's talking about 
with Airbnb. It's kind of a new stack sector that has emerged or you know, I think that I think he's going to figure out ways to well, sort the, of say well, these are exceptions from I his, what his general for, position with Airbnb. I think what he'll say, for instance, is that okay, they are similar to hotels. Therefore, we're not creating a new tax. We're just going to be taxing them the right. way that we already tax. So it's more about folding them into the industry rather than creating a new tax that's going to be on them. And I think it's going to be similar with, with marijuana. He's going to look at it and say that you know. We can we can put these levies on there. Um, that's not not so much as a new tax because you've already got the sales tax on it. Uh, but you have you have to be able to pay for um, the regulation. You have to be able to pay for the programs. You have to be able to pay for the fallout from it. So I think that that's a rationalization that he'll be able to uh, come around on and, and be able to um, to come to yes. I th- I agree that you'll be coming. He'll be coming to yes, but I think that rationalization could be used for any tax. Um, so I think it's not going to be an easy switch for him. And Airbnb, he's already backed off that once. Um, I don't know how he keeps flopping around and trying to make it all fit, um, because I think that's his problem. He he's, he wants to deal with issues rationally, but he's sort of boxed himself in. Um, so. I I think he's got a. You think it's her? I mean, it, this this Hamlet position on taxes. You know, um, yes and no, yes and no, yes and no. I don't think it's really hurt him yet. I don't think it's come back, and I, I don't think he's done anything that's hurt himself yet. But I I, I think especially on taxes, um, I'm not sure that the that the general public takes a look at it and sees that he's this demagogue on. Uh, you know, that he's Grover Norquist when it comes to taxes. No, but um, I think he's got his head stuck in the sand on a few things. Uh, this issue that he wouldn't even, he would veto language that we would apply for federal money to do a study of a vehicle's mile tra- vehicle miles travel tax was just insane. Uh, it just made no sense. Uh, and and it's something that needed to be studied, but he was worried about the effect it would have, and I thought he was tied up in knots on it. Now, that's not going to hurt him with the general electorate, I agree, because they like to hear the governor's going to hold the line on taxes. But when it doesn't make any sense, I think that hurts his image as a rational problem right. solver. kind of the evidence-based uh, you know, policy guy. I yeah. agree with that. H- hasn't he switched on that though? Isn't there indications that 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 he is open to looking at a uh, vehicle mileage tax now? Uh, I I'm not aware of that. I, th- I thought I had uh, seen something. There's, uh, there's been talk that he might now be open to a study of it, but of course we've sort of missed the boat for the federal money right. that would fund it. Um, which adds to the insanity of it, in my opinion. But um, but he can call his buddy Donald Trump now and get that get that money all of a sudden. Oh, he'll, you he'll want you want to go there? No, no, I wasn't <laughs> suggesting that we go there. I just you know. Um, well, I, I'm almost tempted. Speaking of federal money, what about the uh, the T? The T. Okay. So setting up the T for next year, I'd have to say that. Um, it's still very much a work in progress, but it seems to me that particularly late this year, they've made a number of moves that have um, have have brought a lot of good feeling or good optimism about the tea. One was they just struck a deal with the Carmen's Union, 
where the Commerce Union is going to take basically a step back on wages in return for some job security. And um, Baker's own transportation secretary sort of thanked the legislature for this, which was interesting, giving the suspension of the Pacheco law, which limits privatization. Getting that suspended allowed, I think, the T to use that as leverage to bring the Carmen's Union around. So that's going to reduce costs at the T uh, and buy some reasonably good labor relations for the coming year. They also made a decision to um, add more purchases of red, new redline cars to their original order, um, which can be done cheaper than fixing up the old ones. It's going to give some consistency to the fleet so they can do repairs more easily. And the big thing for consumers or riders is that by having all an entire modern fleet, they can run trains more quickly on the red line and boost capacity. So those are a couple very big moves. I still think it's a very much a work in progress, but I think that it appears that Titi is making some progress. Um, so I think that bodes well for Baker as he's taken over the T. Um, of course, if something does go wrong in a big way with a winter or whatever, it could change in a, in a heartbeat. Uh, that's we, the danger. You and I have had had a little disagreement on this, though, about the red line cars and, and the way that they went about procuring it and making the vote on it. Um, you know, word came out that they basically made, did the negotiations behind closed doors, um, talked about it behind closed doors, and made the decision to go with a vendor that they've already contracted with, that Chinese company. That appears to me to be contrary to the state bidding laws. Um, and, and the idea of open and transparency, open and transparent uh, workings that the fiscal and management uh, control board is supposed to uh, be under. I, I don't know that, that that's the way that you want to go about it. I don't know that you want to open that door and say, well, yeah, they, the result is, is fine. I mean, they are saving money. They are going with somebody that's already in place. They, are, they do have a contract and everything. Because you don't know if you could have got a cheaper, uh, de- a better deal. You don't know if somebody else would have been uh, able to uh, um, bid on that. And, and I just think that that was um, an overlooked but a really troubling aspect of the uh, decision to buy new cars. Well, uh, their legal counsel, who, you know, legal counsels can say a lot of things, but he, he thought it was within, it was perfectly legal. One of the things you ignore, though, by, by uh, saying that you should go out and bid and see if someone else could do it, you then do not get the exact identical fleet. That, and that was one of the key elements of this. Expand the red line fleet to, so you have all the cars exactly the same. So when you do repairs, you don't have, which is a big problem at the T. They've got vehicles all over the place, and they've got to repair all sorts of different vehicles. If you can make it consistent, you can order parts more efficiently, you can make repairs more efficiently. And, you know, and this is not an illegal issue, but the the company that's putting these cars together, where is their plant? It's in Springfield. That's a big deal out in that part of the the state. Yeah. Here's one thing I want to sort of see what you guys think about in terms of Baker and the T, and that is, is there kind of a a challenge for him uh, between sort of the long-range... Uh, track they're on that may be good versus the sort of short-term experience of riders. And I mean, you you just said, Bruce, that you think 
they've made a lot of, a lot of these moves, the contract with the Carmen, the decision on the red line, that show they're really you know getting some traction on things, which I, I think I would agree with. But some of those are things that are going to play out over the next decade or so. And, and I keep sort of coming back to uh, not to reduce everything to the politics of it or how is this going to reflect on Baker going into the what is really now the second half of his first term coming up, but is the everyday experience of riders changed in any real, you know, significant way? Do people feel like the system's running better, which is, you know, going to well, be... Well, since the three of us ride the red line on a regular basis... <laughs> I think that's, science, that's a scientific sample right there. We could just uh, yeah, render I, the verdict right now. I think you're, you're right. I don't think uh, there's been a enormous improvement uh, in the day-to-day Right, and I situation. think they realize that, and they would say you can't change, you know, 40 years of problems and but it, mismanagement, But at what point is he going to be judged on it then? I mean, it, 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 when you say that you can't change it, you're basically saying, okay, the record is incomplete. At what point can you say you own what's going on, you know? Oh, no, I think he's own, he owns what's going on, but... Um, you know, he would make the argument that we're waiting for these new red and orange line cars to arrive. We're making, and his transportation secretary, secretary has been very effective at saying, we're now making decisions for the long term. The T for so long has just plugged a finger in the dike to, you know, to keep things going. We're now making decisions for long. That's going to be his sales pitch yeah. because I think the new cars and everything are going to come in at the end or after the end of this term. So it's going to be very difficult for him to say, we've, you know, improved. Right. Uh, no, I think, and I think they're right on the substance of it. I think their arguments are, yeah, but are it's on a the tough mark. Sell. But, you know, uh, you know, on the other hand, I don't, as much as he owns the T, I don't know that that, I'm not sure that's going to be the sort of central issue that, that, a, that a governor's race turns on. So I, you know, while I think the, the short-term politics are not, you know, a home run for him, he can't say, look at what's happening here and there, you know, over the next year. Uh, well, I think he's I think probably going to have good, a little bit of time. That's a good question. What is the governor's race going to uh, hang on? You know, I mean, he's not he's not hurt by uh, by his stance on marijuana. Um, you know, everybody's given him not a total pass, but you know, somewhat of a pass on the T. Um, criminal justice, he's not wrapped up in it. Um, education, I mean, he was you know behind the uh, ballot question to raise the cap. But he came in on that, so it's not like people didn't know where he stood. What is it that uh, that's going to define him in the next year? Well, we're both pausing here, trying to think <laughs> of what it is. Um, I think there are a lot of issues that could hurt him, um, depending on who could articulate them. Uh, but I, I think at the core, his biggest strength is that he is trying to address problems that as they come up. Now, uh, some politicians are criticized for not having a grand vision of where the state should go. But I think the voters in Massachusetts seem to like, uh, just from my experience, they seem to like people that tackle problems as they arise. And the T, for example, is something that I think Baker and his, his staff never thought would be the dominant focus for them. But when the winter of 2015 came along and shut the T down, that became their one of their top priorities. So I think he gets a lot of points for trying to tackle these very complex problems that I think if people think about it, they've known them, been around a long time and just sort of ignored. Um, but it, does he have the bandwidth if something else pops up or if 
If we get another terrible winter and things go bad on that, sideways on that, I don't know. I think someone could make a you know, pretty good case. Yeah, and I think also, you know, I mean, these races always turn on, on sort of who the, who the competitors are. So I think that also really depends on who emerges to challenge him. I mean, if you take, I mean, they're not exactly the same. Uh, they're not exactly comparable. I mean, he ran twice for governor. Once he did very poorly, once he he prevailed. He squeaked by, though. He squeaked by, and I think, I mean, the one difference is that the time he kind of really got thrashed, he was running against an incumbent. Uh, but he also was running against uh, someone who everybody says is, you know, just one of the most masterful uh, poli- retail politicians, campaigners, wholesale politicians, too, just great orator, Deval Patrick. Uh, you know, Martha Coakley, I think most would say, was was a, a not nearly as good a candidate. Uh, so I think, you know, whether he can kind of sort of could have play his kind of, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, we're plowing ahead, taking care of business, I think he could do that against some opponents. But, uh, you know, if he gets somebody, it depends whether, I mean, is can a challenger really try to frame the thing around this question of the, you know, vision for the state or cast it in in somewhat more partisan terms or ideological terms you know are we really lifting up everybody from the bottom i mean if you think of deval patrick's rhetoric it was so it was so powerful and uh you know i think also as people are saying that, that this is going to be the same year that there's this millionaire's tax on the ballot so is there a democrat who can kind of harness that and talk about inequality and just kind of these big broad themes in a way that kind of puts Baker back on his heels and makes some of his, oh, you know, we've improved waiting times at the registry and we're getting a handle on the T, that's going to sort of, that may, that may sound a little humdrum to some people, again, depending on, on who's in the race. We, we, we got to wrap this up, but uh, real quick, I mean, with two years is a long time um, in politics, but next year is where they're going to have to um, set the groundwork for whoever is going to challenge them. So real quick, let's come up with a couple of quick names in about 10 or 15 seconds as to why they may be a viable challenger. Um, I think, for instance, Seth Moulton is uh, um, a good possibility. I think he's um, he challenged uh, Baker earlier uh, in the year on a couple of issues. Um, you know, he's made no uh, no bones about uh, having some ambition about wanting to move into uh, other uh, uh, positions, move up. And, and I think he's positioning himself to become um, the vocal leader of the Democratic Party here in Massachusetts, uh, vying along with Elizabeth Warren. Um, how about you, Bruce? Who, who do you see? You know, I have to say I don't really see anyone right now. I think your argument about Seth Moulton is interesting. Um but frankly, I don't really know where he stands on a lot of issues relative to the state. Um, and I don't know how effective he'd be at running the state. Um, so a lot of question marks about him. And, you know, obviously that's what a campaign is all about, defining someone. Um, Maura Healy, the state attorney general, uh, is a very attractive candidate in a lot of ways. But she sort of said she's not interested in running for governor. Um, uh, in 2018. Correct. I mean, I, that's what we're talking right. about, right? Um, so I'm sort of stammering to figure right. out who, who well, it would you've be. Got, I mean, really, the only person who's been put out there with any kind of credibility behind the, the idea that he's really looking at is Seti Warren, the, the mayor of Newton, who's said he's not going to run for re-election next year, yet he's sort of, you know, been, been sort of, uh, uh, you know, 
getting his political operation a little bit tuned up. So that certainly suggests running for something else. Uh, you know, he you now he's had one he had one uh, uh, moment of sort of diving into a U.S. Senate race that he then pulled back from uh, the the uh, race that Elizabeth Warren jumped into. Uh, so you know, he's talked about it. I, you know, I don't again. I think he's pretty untested and certainly hasn't really ever you know had had a, a platform broader than than the you know the mayor seat in Newton. Uh, Senator Dan Wolf is the other one that might fall in that category. He flirted with a run and then backed out for various reasons, but uh, has made rumblings that he might be looking at it too. So you've got um, quite a few very liberal people we've mentioned, and then Seth Moulton, which is a sort of different kettle of fish, uh, sort of hard to pin him down on where he stands uh, philosophically, maybe politically. Clearly, clearly a Democrat, but not as liberal as some of those others. Right. Um, and I don't know who would be... Uh, I think someone a little closer politically toward Baker, Moulton, maybe that person, would be more effective. Um, but I could be wrong. It, it's a real hard... I, I think you were right initially, is, and I, I was saying it for a while, too. Um, I, actually, we were all saying it. I, it wasn't anything uh, original on my part, um, that there really isn't anybody that uh, that you can pinpoint and say, there is a formidable challenger, that you know, and, and they're ready to step up and take over. I don't know that the Democrats have really made uh, a real good effort to uh, bolster the farm team. Well, I th but the people we've mentioned are all, all competent people. It's, it's just a question, But they're again. people that we're putting into the, into the mix. They're not people that have put themselves into the mix. And oh, I think correct. That's, that's correct. kind of the, the, the whole uh, idea here is that at this point, somebody would have said something that, uh, and I think Seti Warren right now is about the only one, that has said something that makes him a, uh, a, a potential candidate by his own um, his own talk. Well, Jack, take us home on this one. <laughs> well, that's it for the for the, this edition of the podcast. Uh, we want to thank ourselves uh, for being here. Um, Bruce Mole, editor of Commonwealth, Michael Jonas, uh, executive editor of Commonwealth. And Jack Sullivan, a senior investigative reporter, because there is no junior investigative reporter. I thought it had to do with your age. No. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> um, you can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or download it on iTunes, or go to our website, www.commonwealthmagazine.org, and click on and listen. Again, I'm Jack Sullivan, Bruce Mole, Michael Jonas. Thank you for listening. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs>